Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about Brexit seen from the outside. It's now over two months since the British people decided to vote on that fateful June day of the 23rd to leave the European Union, 82 days to be precise. And we have been through quite a lot of domestic political turmoil in the UK and have also started to see how others are thinking about the future of the European Union and of the world after Brexit. Most recently, the leaders of the G20 met and Theresa May found herself very much in the in the hot seat as the Japanese government published a, a long note on their views of uh, of what Brexit should happen. But um, speaking to European leaders who were at the G20, they also felt that the whole of the EU was partly in the spotlight and that the rest of the world were not looking at Europe as a, as a kind of strong and stable place. And um, the next big thing that's going to happen is a summit in Bratislava where the EU27 without the UK are going to search for common ground and talk about how they're going to launch the next phase of European integration. Donald Tusk the president of the European Council wrote to the heads of state and government in advance of Bratislava. And his letter begins by saying, we're meeting in Bratislava at a particularly historic moment. So to help us make sense of all of these trends, we have three amazing experts. First up is Angela Stanzer, who is a policy fellow from ECFR's Asia and China program. And she has just written a special issue of China analysis called China and Brexit, what's in it for us. Also down the line is the second author of this China analysis brief, the director of the Asia and China programme, Francois Goodman, who's joining us from Paris. And finally, we have Susie Dennison, the head of ECFR's European Power programme, who will help us uh, understand what's going to happen in Bratislava. But before we go to Bratislava, Let's go to Beijing. Angela, why don't you tell us how Brexit looks from China? Thank you, Mark. Um, so from China, what I got um, from the media were very different voices, although overall, of course, most of the observers in China try to figure out um, exactly what the title of this China analysis edition is, what is in it for us. Um, the first reactions, I think there was a mix between people being as surprised as in Europe and the rest of the world, but there were also a few voices in China who said they were not surprised at all, um, saying that the UK actually was never seen as a true member of the European Union as it never joined Schengen or the Eurozone, and one author even said he thought it was just a matter of time for something like this to happen. Um, on the impact of the Brexit, um, the voices were very, very bleak. Um, most of them thought the EU itself is going to be weak from now on without uh, UK um, as a member. 
but they thought that the UK is even going to be weaker um, than the European Union. Um, and some of um, the authors, the Chinese authors, even thought that the UK is bound to break apart um, even more, given that Scotland might call for a referendum such uh, and also in Northern Ireland. Um, the more balanced voices um, also actually warned um, China to pay attention to what is happening in Europe, um, given that the economy in Europe might slow down or there will be a negative, any kind of negative impact on trade and, and economy in Europe. Um, so they called on China to pay attention to that and to actually intensify relations and the dialogue with um, the UK, both the UK, but also the European Union, in order to um, be able to react and adjust its own Europe policies in uh, according to the changes in Europe. Um, some other Chinese um, authors thought this is a great opportunity for China because of a weaker Europe and UK. China um, will have a, have a better standing in bargaining future agreements um, with both the European Union and the UK. They saw it as a chance. Um, one Chinese author even thought this might be a chance for China to um, push the EU towards lifting the arms embargo that um, the EU had imposed since um, 89 on China. Um, so you can see they're very, very different kind of opinions, hopes, but also great concerns um, in China, in particular when it comes to the economy. So one of the most fascinating bits of your paper, actually, was when you talk about Feng Zhongping, who's one of the, the leading experts on Europe in China um, at the China Institute for Contemporary International Relations, which is aligned with the state security ministry and um, in it he he says uh, that the geopolitical map of Europe is going to be rewritten with a great power game that takes place between Russia and the United States and, and Europe somewhere in between. Where does China fit into this um, uh, attempt to, to pull Europe apart? Well, I think um, China is seen still as a winner in this power game. Um, it's basically the declining powers, the Western powers, um, the US and Europe versus the emerging powers, China, but also India and um, some other Asian countries, maybe. So there is clearly this kind of um, you against us. And now you see what happened. Um, you there was a big blow. Brexit was a big blow for the West in itself. It basically put in question the whole Western model. Um, and it's proof that globalization, uh, free trade and all these ideas actually did not work out as well as the West has thought. Um, I think these were these kind of most compelling voices um, on this question of the great power game. Although Feng Zhongping actually has been one of the most balanced um, authors that I came across in, in all the presented voices in, in this edition, because he is actually the only one who is also trying to examine um, what China should do. And he's calling on China to um, I mean, he doesn't say that directly, but I think reading between the lines, he's trying to say, don't be as righteous. And now is the time to actually intensify the dialogue with the European Union as well as the UK instead of pointing fingers. Um, yeah. The other weird thing about this is that um, 
the first thing that's happened in terms of China is almost the opposite of what a lot of people predicted because people thought Britain would become much more mercantilist, much more beholden to China. But instead, Theresa May used um, her ascension to the to the role to question this big joint nuclear power station project, which the Chinese and the French are involved with at Hinkley Point. How do the Chinese react to that and explain that away? Well, I mean, there was the um, widely reported reaction of the Chinese ambassador in the UK who predicted that this is the end of the golden age um, of UK-China relationship. Um, the reactions in China might have not been as harsh, but of course it came as a shock. I think the problem was um, not so much the issue about revising the agreement of Hinkley Point. I think what shocked the Chinese was how it was communicated, um, that there has not been any kind of consultation or warning or any of that in uh, beforehand. And I think this is um, something that the Chinese did not expect at all, also not in China. Um, and the reaction of the Chinese ambassador in London is just illustrating this shock about um, how Theresa May did not even communicate it in any, in any case to anyone um, prior to her announcement. And I think this was actually the bigger issue than the actual um, uh, reviewing of the agreement. François, um, you've, you've obviously been looking at the Chinese relationship, but also at some of the other relationships. And uh, one of the most uh, written about reactions to the Brexit at the G20 meeting was the Japanese government's one. They said that they saw the UK as a gateway to, to Europe, but they wanted to know whether that gateway was still open or whether it was gonna, gonna close. Um, how, how does the rest of Asia look at Brexit? There is a marked contrast uh, between the way China looks at the overall issue very strategically, uh, while Japan looks at it largely from economic and business perspective, I would comment on that, and India, the other major power, uh, quite opportunistically, uh, in terms of uh, its difficulties uh, about a trade deal, about a free trade deal with the EU. To start with Japan, Japan has major industrial investment in the UK. It's a major production base for the rest of the EU. So anything nasty that's going to happen between the UK and the EU uh, will have a direct impact on those Japanese firms. And they have to consider not only if they leave subsidiaries there, but even if they will move production facilities. Just the, 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 the lower pound uh, has already impacted, for example, uh, on their imports uh, into the UK for these factories uh, and raise their costs and diminish their profits. So this uh, is a very serious call by the Japanese, which they have expressed in just about every way possible. The strange thing is that, in fact, they should be seen as supporters to Mrs. Theresa May herself, who was never enthusiastic about a Brexit, uh, and, and who is clearly uh, advocating for what you might call a soft Brexit or a minimal uh, Brexit. Uh, the difficulty there is that Japan has an overall EU policy, particularly under Shinzo Abe, who has been more outspoken on Europe than most other Japanese prime ministers, and that the, uh, the admonition by Japan to the UK doesn't really speak to the other EU countries. Uh, then you have India, and India has its difficulties with the EU. They basically disregard each other. 
the free trade deal has floundered. India has a track record of sometimes signing what trade specialists call shallow trade deals, shallow free trade deals without too much content. So it's clear that the, 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 the Indians have been immediately open to business uh, with the UK. Uh, so is China. The Ministry of Commerce has announced it was ready to discuss uh, an eventual free trade agreement. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. Uh, there is a coming storm between China and the EU because of the uh, end of the uh, WTO transition period with the anti-dumping that was supposed to uh, uh, become normalized, that China was supposed to become similar to other countries in December uh, 2016. This is unlikely to happen given what the Commission has come out with uh, and given public uh, support for continuing anti-dumping. China right now is unusually mum about this when it should be angry and demonstrating. But there is a big likelihood that it is going to use its usual divide and rule tactics uh, and to be probably the most uh, striking uh, potential partner for the UK. Uh, you've mentioned very rightly, uh, Mark, that uh, London has started uh, with the security, uh, the security issue. The, the issue about Hinkley Point was not made uh, in, in Theresa May's entourage on economic grounds, although it might well have been, but that's not the case. They've been discussing security, uh, and it's an overall uh, reflection of the fact that conservatives were split between the financial appeal of China and the security problems uh, that it may create. My feeling is that as the strategy for Brexit becomes more seriously managed for in, in London. Right now, we can quite clearly see a division among ministers. But if that is resolved, we will see a much more forward-looking strategy by the UK. And you haven't mentioned yet uh, Mr. Donald Tusk's letter before the Bratislava summit, but I, 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 I draw your attention to a paragraph of that letter where he says the EU should move on its trade deals with the rest of the world very quickly. And he says, I mean months, not years. And the reality with that sentence is that Donald Tusk has clearly taken into consideration the risk that the UK might actually uh, outfox the EU, move faster towards partners. This is not a surefire proposition. The UK is not the most impressive trade partner in the history uh, of modern economies today. The EU is much larger. But the EU is so disorganized uh, that uh, the UK, with a unity of command, which is not yet fully there, uh, might just uh, get the advantage. So that creates a natural bridge to the uh, other topic which we want to talk through, which is, is Bratislava. People have been talking about it for weeks. Uh, symbolically important in two ways. First of all, that it's not in Brussels. So the idea is that the European Union is trying to reconnect with its national capitals. And secondly, that Britain will not be there. It's the first meeting at heads of state and government that people have, where people have had a proper chance to prepare and to think about a way forward after, after the Brexit vote. Susie, why don't you tell us um, what we should expect from Bratislava? What have you found from your talks with different capitals? Well, I think that um, what 
uh, Donald Tusk and leaders of the um, EU states um, at Bratislava want to show from uh, from this meeting is is a vision of an EU that works, um, that delivers on um, the issues which are of concerns to citizens today. Brexit itself is expressly not on the agenda, but it will obviously um, diffuse, um, it, it will obviously be evident in, in, in all of the items that are, um, as, as EU leaders start to, to move to looking at um, how they work post-UK. Um, you know, we've heard a lot over the summer um, about um, German, French and Italian cooperation um, as, as a new item, but these working practices, what Brexit actually means, that's not the subject of the discussion. What um, uh, what the EU leaders um, uh, want to want to want to to to, to deliver on um, are the questions of security, border control, and terrorism. This is for um, a range of reasons. Firstly, um, as, as has been said earlier, they're they're all kind of back from the G20, keenly aware of how uh, the EU looks from from the outside, um, and, uh, and 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 want to sort of change that um, that reputation um, as um, to, to show that it's still a functioning body and it's it's still a serious body. Um, but this also matters internally. Um, Angela Angela Merkel will be coming. Um, fresh from uh, a bruising in regional um, elections in Germany, um, where in um, in her home state, the AfD um, came in second place, pushing her CDU into third place. Um, uh, fra- uh, and, and, and so, so the, the issue, um, the issue for her of, um, of, 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 of how 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 European leaders deal with um, the insurgent parties that they're they're grappling with at home, who are sort of driving the agenda on a lot of these issues, um, is 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 very important for her. Um, Francois Hollande um, has, has obviously had to deal with um, uh, more attacks at home over the summer, so the issue of terrorism is very live there. Um, so um, it's no surprise that this this sort of um, these questions are, are where leaders want to focus the attention, and we've got um, uh, a Franco-German initiative on on um, security cooperation, which is going to be discussed here um, properly for the first time, proposing a Schengen of defence, um, uh, greater cooperation between a, a core group of states, um, and um, the letter. Um, from from the the French and uh, German defence ministers setting this out talk, talks about henceforth we have to act as twenty seven. Um, there's there's very much a sense um, in the preparations for this meeting that this is about the EU moving on from Brexit. This is about um, what it's going to look like going forward. Um, and um, uh, and 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 I think the idea is to develop um, new concrete propositions. And maybe just to say that back in Brussels. Um, we've just had this week the hearings for the new um, UK com- commissioner, Julian King, um, uh, who will be the um, the commissioner on um, on security and counterterrorism if confirmed. Um, and those hearing the, he had his uh, committee hearing in Parliament yesterday, um, and that actually went very well. Um, I think partly because he was convincing on the security dossier, um, which I think shows that in Brussels too there is this sense that we need to we need to move forward now. The UK still might still be sort of bogged down in this quagmire of. Um, 
what Brexit means, how it will work. Um, but um, but other other capitals um, are sort of moving on from that, and that and that disconnect I think will matter in terms of the implications for the deal that the UK can get, um, uh, and and perhaps makes the kind of the the hard Brexit option more likely um, because uh, the UK is is not perhaps sufficiently live to the fact that other states are moving on. Um, but 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 yeah, I think that Bratislava is 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 all about. Um, after Brexit, and um, and and you know, it may, remains to be seen whether or not it can show something co- concrete. This is an informal uh, meeting, and so on. But certainly, that's where the ambition is. So, it'd be interesting to hear from you, sitting in uh, Paris, François, and, and Angela sitting in Berlin, how you think that Bratislava is being seen from those different places. But it's very interesting going into it. <clears throat> how, on the one hand. There has obviously been a, a desire to step back from really controversial issues by the EU institutions. So people are not uh, uh, taking the, the EU institutions, the commissions decided not to take action against Spain and Portugal for not meeting their, their, their fiscal um, uh, uh, obligations. Um, there has obviously been a decision to not talk too much about refugees and the, um, uh, the, 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 the quotas which, uh, for relocations which the member states um, have taken on, given that Hungary is about to have a referendum uh, on that. Uh, but at the same time, um, some leaders have not been standing away from, uh, from, from more kind of divisive rhetoric. Um, Matteo Renzi um, apparently uh, told reporters... Um, uh, after a, a meeting of the anti-austerity southern leaders, now we are many, we can be a, a nuisance. There was a meeting of uh, the Visegrad countries, um, uh, particularly uh, highly reported uh, panel discussion between Viktor Orban and, um, uh, and, and Kaczynski, who talked about uh, launching a cultural counter-revolution to seize power back from Brussels. Uh, including with a new treaty, which which kind of um, uh, helps to reinforce that. Um, apparently, Alexis Tsipras um, uh, said uh, that the EU now needs to decide if we're a European Union or a German Union. Um, Angela, what how do what do people in Berlin think? Is it a European Union or a or a German Union? How much do they feel that it's going to be possible to get something positive out of this, or is simply not having a massive row going to be seen as a as a triumph? Well, I think foremost, uh, most Germans do not want a German Union. Um, ir- ironically, um, this is I think one of the issues or. Um, big topics that um, Merkel is also going to try to achieve in Bratislava to try to form some sort of unity with others and not actually, um, I mean, it has been even widely reported in China that it's now the time for Germany to step up and to really take the lead and now there's nothing in the way anymore for Germany to become the hegemon and so on and so forth, but Germans don't want that. Um, first of all, I think we are realistic enough to know that they are, um, we cannot really fill the shoes um, that the UK has left or is going to leave now, especially when it comes to security and um, also the UK's role in the Security Council, which gave it a very global voice. Um, Germany as such cannot fully replace the UK and also cannot make Europe 
German or form Europe behind uh, Germany or something like this. I think there is going to be a lot of effort to try to um, come together with Hollande, um, but also probably with other leaders in um, in the European member states and to agree on, even if it's small steps, but find kind of a... Um, common unified agreement with other Europeans in order to avoid a German Union. François, how do you see things? Well, from Paris, first of all, we're completely into uh, campaign politics for the presidential election next spring. I mean, the race is on. Uh, and this sort of obsesses the media. If you took an opinion poll, I think not one person in a thousand would be aware that there is a Bratislava summit coming. Uh, the, 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 I'm sorry to say that important things such as global trade strategy for the EU and attitudes towards the UK, uh, which again, I think is the real decider, this decisive point for the next two years uh, on whether the, the EU keeps uh, the initiative or not. Uh, that is really not present. Uh, there is rather a pro-EU or anti-EU debate on just about every topic you could find. Uh, Positive points from the EU, for example, the fact that Frontex has actually been a little more effective uh, over the past few months uh, uh, regarding the refugee uh, issue uh, are not really uh, discussed. Calais is discussed, of course, every day. Uh, so we are in a, in a very, very special mood. Uh, on the relationship with Germany and the issue for German Union, uh, I would say that the important development of the past few weeks is that Hollande and his government, given the electoral politics that they're in, have essentially decided to do away with uh, budgetary austerity uh, in several areas. They are clearly planning for a budget that will have a deficit that's higher than anything they committed to, uh, and doing it in part because it's an election year, and hoping that uh, Germany and the EU will not say uh, too much about it, in part perhaps because Spain and Italy got away uh, with some of the same uh, reasoning. So we have a situation where we do not discuss the future of EU except among, uh, you know, aficionados, pros of European policy. Uh, Sylvie Goulard has come out with a particularly interesting piece, for example, uh, the rest uh, are now divided between populist politics uh, and uh, immediate economic concerns. So domestic politics and all uh, local politics uh, taking precedence over, over what happens at the EU um, doesn't seem like a totally new <laughs> development, but maybe it's more pronounced at the moment. Susie, what do you, what do you think... Um, uh, is actually going to happen. I mean, we know that there is going to be a lot of talk about European defence because that's one of the areas where Britain was acting as a, a barrier on integration um, because it was blocking the creation of an uh, of, a, of a headquarters, an OHQ, an operational headquarters, and also stopping the EU from increasing the budget of the European Defence Agency. So that those two vetoes will, will kind of disappear as a result of Britain disappearing. Um, but also it's one of the few things that doesn't divide the European Union. I, I spoke to a very senior uh, European Commission official the other day who'd been preparing um, for 
Bratislava uh, by phoning up the heads of state and government in all the different countries. And he said that on almost all the big issues, um, you had uh, about half the member states on one side and half on the other side. And it was it's pretty difficult to see where you could get people together on um, uh, on anything at all. And, but this was one of the few areas where the Venn diagram worked because even Eurosceptic uh, Visegrad leaders are in favour of, of, of a European army. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that um, Bratislava is going to um, is, is going to kind of come out with conclusions that take us straight towards the European army. Um, but I, I do think that it's likely um, that um, this will kind of um, set the ball rolling towards um, ideas like the single budget for um, military research, like um, the EU command centre. Um, which, which are in the, the, the Franco-German paper. Um, and I think that sort of generally um, it's likely that um, uh, the, uh, the, the gauntlet will be taken up um, for, from now on um, uh, in terms of increasing defence um, spending within Europe. Um, it's quite interesting. We're doing research at the moment for a new flash scorecard on the transatlantic relationship and the, and the kind of the challenge um, that's coming out of the loss of the rhetoric in the US elections um, about Europe sort of not taking responsibility for itself on the security front and, um, and, and so on does seem to be taken quite seriously um, in, in a lot of capitals at the moment. Um, and um, that there is a kind of maybe a sense of a turning point on this issue um, uh, that, that that sort of Brexit has initiated, um, but also that, that that US election debate is playing into too. So I, I think that um, this is likely to be kind of the, the start of something on this um, defence cooperation idea. Um, but um, I do think that, um, that uh, the idea of kind of keeping the UK involved in that discussion is going to be very significant still for a lot of member states um and um you know so so, so i don't think that um these initiatives are going to be at the cost of, of of that um but but yeah i think that's definitely the area that we should expect to see kind of some sort of concrete results you know i the other big issues which are highlighted in the Bratislava agenda around um uh, around sort of border control those kinds of questions, immigration, are, uh, as you say, much more divisive in terms of how member states um, see um, see us dealing uh, with them at a European level. And so I think it's much less likely that we'll come out with anything concrete on that. OK, well, we'll definitely come back after Bratislava and see what's happening with that. But more importantly, carry on this bigger conversation about how the Brexit is changing dynamics within Europe, but also changing the way that the rest of the world sees the EU as a political player on the world stage. We have one more thing to do on this podcast, though, however, which is to talk about our bookshelves and what uh, we're reading at the moment. Um, Susie, would you mind going first on that? What, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, well, not a book, but I wanted to recommend a piece by um, ECFR council member Andres Ortega um, on the um, which did for Elcano last week, I think, called Europeans Need to Get Down to Work. And it's basically looking at this issue of um, delivering on concrete um, uh, items rather than uh, navel gazing over the next period. What about you, Angela? What are you reading at the moment? Um, well, I'm reading a kind of not up-to-date book called Wild Grass of Ian Johnson, who gives um, free um, portraits of change in modern China. Still up-to-date, though. 
Great. And what about you, Francois? What would you recommend? Well, it's a, it's a different tack. I mentioned Sylvie Goulard, so I will mention her again, because I've been reading the book that, in fact, appeared before the Brexit referendum on, on, on the EU and the UK. It's in French, by the way. Uh, and, and she was, I think, very uh, uh, interestingly already mentioning the lack of action or the lack of reaction by the EU. She's still writing more in interviews uh, on, on this trend. Uh, she's a council member, of course, uh, at the CFR, and I think it's a very important uh, strain of strand, strand of thinking. Uh, somebody who you can call a federalist if you wish, because there is that debate, but who is actually uh, consistently launching calls for a better integrator, more efficient EU as a response to uh, Brexit, of course, but, you know, the American election is coming and who knows, we might have big surprises there and, and reasons to regroup too. Okay, and I would like to recommend, not just because uh, they're both on the call with me, uh, but Francois and Angela's paper on China and Brexit, which is a really interesting dive into the Chinese debate about uh, about Brexit, which, which we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to us. If you have, please help other people find out about it. It's very important that you go to our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash ECFR, and um, leave a comment on that. That you go to iTunes, give us a rating and a review, or SoundCloud or MixCloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast. And if you have any comments on this, uh, please do feel free to write to me, mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, or tweet about us and encourage your friends and family and other people that you know to, to listen to the podcast. We have put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, both on our Facebook page and on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Angela Stanzer, Susie Dennison, Francois Goodmont, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>